0: And welcome to the Crowns and Constitutions Podcast, Episode 2, Magna Carta, Building on the Ruins of Rome. We'll begin the story of the Magna Carta centuries before the Magna Carta in 476 AD. The world has hit a turning point the Western Roman Emperor abdicated his empirical throne, and the once great Western Roman Empire is now facing complete collapse in the face of barbarian invasions from mysterious northern and eastern lands. There are a couple main points we need to keep in mind when we discuss the Roman Empire. The first is that when we talk about the collapse of the Roman Empire, we are talking about the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, the base of which was on the Italian peninsula. The Eastern Roman Empire remained powerful and a major player in world history for centuries to come. The Eastern Roman Empire power base was Constantinople. Now, For the sake of simplicity, I will refer to the Western Roman Empire as the Roman Empire, unless I need to distinguish it from the Eastern. It's just easier on my tongue and it flows a little better. Now, the second key point we need to remember is that when we talk about the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, the Roman Empire, the people, culture, and traditions of the Romans did not just completely evaporate into thin air come 476. The Roman people and many Roman institutions lingered in various areas, and in some cases were adopted by the Germanic clans that migrated into lands previously under the control of the Empire. And this has relevance to the Magna Carta because some, certainly not all, of these legal principles and social customs contributed to the development of various legal systems over the course of the following 800 years and served as the context from which the Magna Carta originated. But we will see this development over the course of future episodes. For now, let's just focus in on the year 476 and find out what happened to the Roman Empire. The year 476 A.D. is a traditional date historians use to separate the period of history between the ancient Roman Empire and the medieval period of Europe. This is the year that the last Roman emperor in the West named Romulus Augustulus, who ruled for less than one year between October 475 and August of 476, was deposed. Fortunately for Romulus Augustulus, he walked away from the throne with his life. Many of his predecessors did not. By the time Romulus Augustulus was deposed, the end of the great Roman Empire, the empire of Caesar Augustus, Marcus Aurelius, Constantine, was, it was at hand. But we have to be careful here and not assume more than the evidence will allow. It's common for modern historians to draw a distinct line here, between the end of the Western Roman Empire and medieval times, but the reality isn't that simple. Certainly, the strong central authority that ruled from Rome and later Ravenna, which is a city on the eastern coast of the Italian peninsula, um, that, that strong central authority that had existed for almost 500 years did disintegrate by 476, but it wasn't because a bunch of angry, mean outsiders from the north and east just moved in and took over and killed everyone inside. although that did happen in a few places. The transition from the Western Roman Empire to the next phase of social organization was much more of a progression than a sharp, obvious dividing line in history. There are several theories and reasons put forth by scholars as to why the empire collapsed. Now, it is not necessary to definitively resolve this question for our purposes, but we should mention some of these theories because Christianity has been blamed for its collapse in some circles. But we will see that rather than serving as a vector of destruction, the church promoted and served more as a conduit in passing on important Roman ideas and practices to the communities that would come to fill the vacuum left by Roman authority. Case in point is the classic view, and now discredited view, put forth by Edward Gibbon, a famous English historian and disciple of the Enlightenment who lived in the 18th century. Well, he claimed that the Western Roman authority collapsed due to internal corruption resulting from Christianity itself and the Emperor Constantine's conversion to Christianity. In Gibbon's mind Christianity was a big culprit in this collapse because Christianity sowed the seeds of internal strife and encouraged the best educated of the social leaders to drop out of society by becoming a bunch of moralistic ninnies, many of whom who literally became monks and left society to join monasteries while weakening Rome's military capabilities in the process in other words gibbon's argued The Christianity neutered Rome and rendered it powerless, which opened the door for outsiders to invade and take over. Interestingly is the uh, complete opposite opinion taken by St. Augustine, who lived in the 5th century, and who believed Rome was a morally corrupt shell destined to collapse because of its lack of virtue. Rather than weaken the empire, Augustine felt... The Roman citizens, and presumably its public officials, lacked the sufficient Christian morality needed to strengthen and maintain society. Well, What do modern experts believe? Roman Empire historian Peter Heather opined that one obvious reason why we know Gibbon is wrong is because Christianity did not cause any such collapse of the Eastern Roman Empire at the same time. In fact, the Byzantine Empire, as the eastern half of the Roman Empire began to be called, continued to thrive after 476 AD, despite the collapse of the West. And here it's relevant to recall that after Constantine converted to Christianity and legalized it in 313, with his Edict of Milan, he went on, to found Constantinople in modern-day Turkey, which is now known as Istanbul. And yes, he named the city after himself, because that's what emperors and powerful ones get to do. But Christianity continued to thrive in the East, as did the Byzantine Empire for centuries to come. The East survived another thousand years until the fall of Constantinople at the hands of the Ottomans in 1453. So Gibbon's argument that Christianity led to the collapse of the West simply does not hold up in the face of that reality. And one more likely factor that contributed to the decline of the Western Roman authority was the increase in external military attacks that stretched the resources of the empire way too thin. This probably, or this problem really started to become obvious with the invasion of the Huns in the 4th century, and especially under Attila the Hun in the 5th. Now, the Huns were a nomadic people who invaded Western Europe from Eastern European regions. And in doing so, they had to travel across the Germanic lands where the barbarians, as the Romans called them, lived. This had the effect of pushing the Germans out of their homelands and into the Western Roman Empire, especially those borderland provinces. The well known Catholic writer and historian Hilaire Belloc took the position that the Western Roman Empire declined was due to the collapse of the centralized authority in Rome, not because of Christianity, but because of the ability of central authorities in Rome, and later Ravenna, to administer their outer provinces broke down. Now, remember what the Roman Empire was. It was a huge, multi-regional power with a strong central authority. It oversaw provinces from Great Britain to the Middle East and over time, government authority gradually shifted to those outer provinces and away from the central government. And this started a cycle of tax money being diverted away from the central Roman coffers towards the local governments. This led to the emperor's inability to pay the military, and when you can't pay the military, you tend to lose control quite quickly, actually. And that's what happened here. In other words, the power and money gradually was redirected from this all-powerful central government to a more diffuse local government model that basically choked off that money lifeline to the once great central power. Now interestingly, as the Germanic tribes moved into Roman territory to escape the Huns, they began to put aside internal conflicts with each other and consolidate to form larger, more powerful tribes, giving them better leverage to cut deals with the Roman leaders who were desperate for military help. And so in many ways, the Germans and the Romans they worked closely together when they weren't fighting each other. And this reality was to play an important role when the Germanic tribes began to establish kingdoms of their own in the West and inherited many Roman ideas about political control and operations. Now at this point, now that we've covered the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, let's get specific about the reality on the ground at the time. Please bear with me here. I'm going to do somewhat of a rapid fire through history with lots of names, but but there is a method to my madness here. By giving you this background history, I want to introduce some names that will come up again in our discussions and give you a lay of the land and the social landscape or political landscape, so to speak, of the area where Western legal tradition is going to develop. It's almost impossible to talk about the development of law when we don't know the players and politics involved. So, what was the situation outside of Rome itself at about the time that the last Roman emperor was deposed? Well, in the area currently covered by modern-day Spain, the Germanic Visigoth tribe controlled most of the territory the most famous Visigoth king was Alaric, the same one who famously sacked Rome in 410. Well, Alaric died shortly after invading Rome, but his successors, who didn't see a great need to just stay put in Italy, moved into Spain while managing to take over some additional territory to the north in Gaul by 476. Gaul is generally the area covered by modern-day France, although the geographic boundaries do not perfectly line up. The Vandals were another tribe to consider, and today we do not think about northern Africa as being a part of Europe, but back in Roman times, the empire controlled most of northern Africa, including the great city of Carthage. Rather than a barrier between cultures, the Mediterranean Sea served more like a Roman lake because the Romans' sur- Roman territory surrounded all sides of of, of the sea. So, by four seventy six, the Vandals took control of northern African territory, including Carthry, Carthage. And the great Vandal king Genseric he died in four seventy seven. After that, it was it was all downhill for the Vandals the Byzantine Emperor Justinian, who we're going to come back to shortly, he decided to retake northern Africa for the Roman Empire, and he effectively recaptured this vast area for the empire and put the Vandal Kingdom out of existence. Now in Italy, after the last Western Roman Emperor Romulus Augustulus was politely asked by German military mercenary Odo Acer. To turn over his purple emperor robes, and they actually were returned to the Eastern Emperor, the actual robes. Uh, the aristocrats in the senatorial class that remained on the Italian peninsula managed to keep things going independently for a while. Now, random side note tangent here, and I have to warn you, I have a tendency to go off on tangents at times, and I will do my best to keep them to a minimum, rein them in. But Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, it continued to claim its rights over the western portion of the empire, even if they did not exercise direct political control. This notion that the Roman Empire never really dissolved or remained in some sort of hibernated state would actually become relevant again when Charlemagne, several centuries later, sought to be crowned Holy Roman Emperor. Again, I digress, so we're going to go back to the story now. I just wanted to point that out. Eventually, the Ostrogoths, perhaps distant relatives of the Visigoths, moved into Italy from the Balkans. The Ostrogoths were a tribe on the move and quickly moved into the Italian peninsula once it appeared there was no Western Roman emperor to push them out. Theodoric the Great was the Ostrogoth king, and he managed to keep things under control for a while. However, however, after his death, the Byzantine Emperor Justinian, here he is again, and we didn't even have to wait for another episode, decided he was not just going to let all of these uncouth barbarians come into the Western Empire and do whatever they wanted. Justinian did not have as much success there as he did with the Vandals, although he did manage to strike a fatal blow to the Ostrogoths. Eventually, by 568, another Germanic tribe, the Lombards, they invaded the Italian peninsula and established themselves for the next couple hundred years there. The Ostrogoths were not killed, but basically absorbed into the Lombards. Basically, ground zero for the old Western Empire was now an open field for whoever had the desire and military power to move in and make themselves at home. In Gaul, again roughly the area of modern-day France, north of the Visigoth territory in Spain, the Burgundians, Suivi, Alamans, and Frankish German tribes began to migrate into the territory from the east and establish their own spheres of authority. Now remember the Franks. They're not just the namesake of the future kingdom of France. They are one of if not the most important Germanic tribe, to migrate into the old empire. Their impact on the history of Magna Carta is going to be significant, as we're going to see. So, For now, just know that by the time the last Roman emperor in the West was deposed, these were the main Germanic tribes that held authority in Western Europe. Another point to keep in mind is that the remnant of Roman aristocratic landowners they began to be absorbed into these new cultures, especially by the Visigoths and the Franks. And sometimes these Romans, they did flee for their lives, but other ones, they stayed and worked with the Germanic tribes who moved in. There were other Germanic tribes as well that are extremely important to the story. Uh, they originated from areas further north, of uh, the Germanic tribes we just mentioned. The main ones, especially the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes, also began to migrate from the east into what we know today as England at about that same time. And as you might already know, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms eventually established in place of the old uh, Roman Britain, they would play a major role in the history of Magna Carta. But for the sake of completeness, on the great britain island itself i should also mention that the native picts scots and the irish also began to move in from the north the native britons who resided on the southern half of that great britain island they began to be overwhelmed by the influx of these foreigners these immigrations from the north and the east forced the native britons who were previously under roman control onto the mainland in northern Gaul, which is where the Brittany region gets its name from. So, to summarize, as of 476 AD, major movements of Germanic peoples began to migrate from both northern and southern areas of these tribal lands into Western Europe and onto the island of Great Britain. But other pagan tribes also began to move, and these migrations were a major source of intermixing of traditions, customs, and, as you can imagine, political conflict. We also cannot forget that the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantium under Justinian, they also remained a powerful entity here. And finally, I would be negligent if I did not mention the Catholic Church at this point, because the Church is going to play a major role in the story of Magna Carta. By the time of 476, Christianity had spread across southern Europe into Spain, Gaul, Italy, and the east. Constantine was converted, as I had mentioned before, and the church did influence much of late Roman culture, although, as also previously discussed, there is little evidence supporting the idea that it was the cause of the collapse of the empire. And, contrary to what many others think, the Roman Empire did not all become christians just because constantine converted in 476 most of the northern german tribes they still worship pagan gods christianity began to spread north and convert these northern tribes the conversion of the german tribes to christianity is key to understanding the development of western legal tradition of which Mag- magna carta is going to play a major part Thus concludes the end of my rapid-fire segment through history at the time of the collapse of the empire. But before we conclude this episode, we need to circle back to something I mentioned earlier and talk about some, you know, actual legal history. And that was how the Roman Empire influenced later developments in these areas being taken over by the Germanic tribes. I think there are really three main areas of influence that are going to be relevant for our understanding of the Magna Carta. First is the Roman Vulgar Law. Now, remember when I said that even though 476 marks the classical date historians use to delineate between the end of the Western Roman Empire and medieval times, but the Romans did not just evaporate into thin air? Well, the Roman Vulgar Law is one of those influences that lingered on in Western traditions despite the total collapse of the formal Roman legal system in the West. Especially in the areas of northern Italy, Spain, and southern France, some elements of Roman law survived. And what I mean by survive is that not that there was some Roman authority left to apply and enforce the law, But that particular legal concepts or rules were adopted by the Germanic tribal leaders and their kings in those areas. Modern scholars refer to these piecemeal leftovers of Roman law as the vulgar law. The word vulgar itself coming from the Latin word vulgaris, referring to a mob or the common people. While some of these Roman laws came from customs handed down or simply maintained by those Romans' who simply refused to leave when the barbarians took over, another source of Roman law important for our purposes was Justinian's Code, which, as you probably guessed, was developed under the sponsorship of the Eastern Byzantine Emperor Justinian. This code, so to speak, was really a compilation in one place of prior ancient Roman laws, legal opinions from Roman jurists, and laws imposed by Justinian himself in the 6th century. These laws were carefully selected by Justinian's lawyers for republication, so presumably anything that Justinian did not like did not make it into the code. But it's not like he sat down and just drafted the entire thing out of thin air either. Justinian's code was massively important for the development of the law in the West, And in fact, legal scholars and political philosophers at the time of Magna Carta were studying this code very carefully and leaned on it when resolving disputes that would come up. So, from the earliest of the Germanic invasions to the time of Magna Carta, some 800 years later, Justinian's code served more or less as a helpful guidebook as various legal orders were developed, and including informing the canon law of the church. Now, an example of how these Roman legal concepts influenced the development of the law in Western Christendom, uh, an example of that was the idea that an immoral or unlawful transaction would be void and unenforceable despite the agreement of mutually consenting parties to a contract. Now, we actually see remnants of this legal concept down to this day in American law. There are some freely entered contracts that simply will not be recognized by law and cannot be enforced. But Justinian's Code is also relevant for our topic at hand, Magna Carta, because the Roman jurists I refer to, those opinions that were incorporated into the Code by Justinian, well, they also discuss the concept or the notion of rights. St. Thomas Aquinas, who wrote his famous Summa Theologica in the 13th century, just shortly after the Magna Carta, he leans heavily on these Roman jurists when he discussed the notion of a right. Well, was this Roman view of a right understood in the same way by King John and his barons at the time of Magna Carta? Is it the same as John Locke's view of natural right several centuries even after that? Well, these are questions that we have to save for later, but for now, just remember that Justinian's Code is an important piece to understanding both Magna Carta and the concept of a right. So, in addition to the Roman vulgar law and Justinian's Code, the third area of Roman influence on the development of Western Christendom, which is not in itself a legal concept but was enforced by the Roman law was this idea that a society is naturally hierarchical, with each strata of society playing an important role. Generally speaking, Roman society was divided into citizens and non-citizens. The non-citizens were further divided between free and unfree. Slavery persisted in the Roman Empire and continued after the demise of the West. Now, Over time, this hierarchy persisted, but the institution of slavery, as the Romans understood it, gradually died out under Christianity, although some claim it was simply transformed into feudal serfdom. However, that is not quite accurate. We will see that when we come back to serfdom in later episodes. But for now, just know that this hierarchical structure within Roman society did persist, and especially into the southern European areas, where Rome was most influential. So this background, including the Western and Eastern Roman influence on the development of law, it is necessary ground to cover as we move forward to discuss the development of the notion of rights and duties under the Germanic folk law that was transported into the West from migrating Germanic tribes and more fully developed by the church. These various strands of law and authority, they'll all come together by the time of 1215 and will serve as the legal combat zone, so to speak, in which the war between King John and his barons was fought.